Keep your Bibles on the text that Michael just read, 635 through 40. That's what we're going to be focusing on today. It's five verses that boggled me all week, that kept me on my toes and busy all week, that kept my wife saying late at night, are you going to come to bed? And uh, I literally probably have 35 hours into this sermon, and uh, it just, it's some, we're going to deal with some very profound truths in this text, things that are just on the edge of our ability to, to understand. And uh, the biggest thing for me wasn't necessarily the theology of it. I get the theology of it to a degree, but it's, and it's not uh, seeing what Jesus said. I, I can see it. The red letters show me here of what he said. It's, it's trying to understand what exactly he means as he moves through his discourse. And typically what we do is we isolate subject matter and run with that, and we're not really holding to the context. And so the challenge for me this week was to try to keep it in context and discern what exactly he is working to convey to those who are standing in front of him. That's the biggest challenge, and uh, that's what gets me every week. So that's why I labored so intensively to write, but I'm glad that it's, it's come together by God's grace. Last Sunday, we began to look at the synagogue discourse, which we see here in John 6. It is where Jesus addresses a misguided crowd. Uh, the evening before in Bethsaida, Julius, that's a, a little province area, a little town area, if you will, about four miles away from Capernaum up on the coastline of Galilee. Jesus was there, and he supernaturally, through a miracle, fed thousands and thousands of people with five loaves and a couple of fish. I told you the stuff just kept coming out of the basket. It was just crazy. And the next day, a smaller crowd, uh, some of the people that were left over that, you know, that didn't leave, everyone was dismissed, but some hung on and stayed the night. And this little smaller crowd went looking for Jesus the next day. Why? Because they wanted more free food. And it's very typical. We tend to get into that mode of going to Jesus just for the temporal needs, and that's precisely what they were doing. But they went and found him at Capernaum. And they found him in the synagogue where he preached the gospel regularly. And when they came in, Jesus knew what they were actually seeking. He's omniscient. He knows the thoughts of men. He knows everything. And he calls them out for seeking him for physical food when what they actually needed is spiritual food. They needed their souls nourished. To drive this point home, I said last week that Jesus presents himself in the, in the synagogue discourse as the bread of God, the bread of life, and the living bread. He uses all of these bread analogies. You know, he's talking about physical food, but he's applying them to himself so that he can reach them with, what they're, with where they're at. And we know in the Old Testament, we learned this last week, that the Father supplied and fed his people with manna, that's like the bread of heaven. That's how he fed them when they were in the wilderness. And then the similarity or parallel here in our text is that he has supplied the bread of God, Jesus Christ, for our spiritual hunger. So the manna takes care of the physical back in the Old Testament, and that points to Jesus who takes care of our spiritual hunger. This morning, we are going to look at the next section and title, the bread of life, which has to do with salvation. The bread of God has to do with supply. That's God's supply. And bread of life has to do with uh, salvation. 
The bottom line here, and I'm not giving you the application right now or anything like that, but the point that Jesus makes through that title is that He's the only one, the only bread who can give salvation. He's the only one who can give eternal life. Uh, Or the Father has supplied no other resource, no other bread, no other Savior. Jesus is He. Did the crowd that Jesus was preaching to, these people who had come for more fish and bread, did they understand what Jesus was saying? Did they understand that He is the bread of God? Because that's what we talked about last week. Did they get it? Did they understand that He is the only supply, the only one who can satisfy their spiritual hunger once and for all? No, they completely missed it. They thought He was referring to a new kind of manna or bread that could satisfy their physical hunger forever and ever and ever. Produce it and give it to us, Jesus, and we'll be good to go. That's what they were thinking. In the next section, we will see how Jesus responds to them. He knows what they're thinking. He knows what's going on. And and this part of the discourse is his response to them at that very moment. Let's pray before we move into the text. Lord, we humbly come before you and acknowledge your presence, your glory, your beauty, your majesty, your power your knowledge, which is infinite, your faithfulness. You are amazing, God. And you have sent Jesus as our only bread, our only Savior. God, make that clear today, but uh, equally important, make the truths that are... This text says some things in particular. It says things about predestination and election and those kinds of things, these really, really kind of big big theological truths, these big biblical truths that are tough for us to understand. And sometimes when we begin to understand them, they're tough for us to accept. Uh, We know that you have our best in mind here. And so may we not be armed up and defensive. May we relinquish our weaponry and humbly sit in your presence and listen to what you have to say here. Teach us this morning and... uh, May we give you praise and glory for all that that transpires during this message and everything else that we do here. Uh, We give ourselves to you, our attention and time right now. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're going to pick it up at 35 and 36. I couldn't frame this text like I have in the other ones in that same kind of sermon structure with a bunch of letters or anything. It's not as easy to put in topical form here. So I'm just going to work the verses. Picking it up at 35, here's what Jesus says to them after they say, hey, give us this bread, meaning give us the bread that will satisfy us forever, not yourself. Here's what Jesus says to them in 35. He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall not thirst. 36, but I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe This part of the discourse begins with this uh, grand statement here. In response to their obtuseness, missing the point, Jesus steers the crowd back to the subject at hand, the subject that he himself has introduced, spiritual hunger. They want physical food. He is trying to give them, telling them that they need spiritual food. So, that I am the bread of life statement is exactly that. But I don't want to get into the meaning of that quite yet. We've already touched on it, but I don't want to plunge ourselves into that. I want you to underline a phrase 
it's really, uh, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, five words in, the phrase, I am. Underline that in your Bible, circle it, highlight it. If you don't like writing in your Bible, pretend that you did. Some people don't like to mark up their Bibles, and I get that. They feel like they're adding to the Word of God, or they just don't like messy stuff. I am. I am. This is the first of seven I am statements Jesus used to declare his deity and messiahship. We see them throughout John's gospel. How many of you have heard of the I am statements? Have you ever studied that? Have you ever stumbled across that? I'll give them to you real quick in John's gospel. We have I am the bread of life. That's 635, right? I am the light of the world, 812. I am the door, chapter 10, verse 7 and 9. I am the good shepherd, chapter 10, verse 11 and 14. I am the resurrection and the life, chapter 1125. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Most people have heard that one, right? That's 14.6. I am the true vine, 15, 1 and 2. Five. Jesus referred to himself as I am all of those times in John's gospel, or at least he did that when he was preaching and John recorded those. And all of them signify something in particular, his messiahship, his deity. Now this phrase I am was highly, highly recognizable with Jewish audiences, the kinds of people that Jesus preached to there, because it is paralleled with the most revered Old Testament name for God, Yahweh. How many of you have heard the name Yahweh? Maybe you saw that dumb movie with Jim Carrey, Yahweh. What was that, Bruce Almighty? Maybe that was your only experience with it. That's not an actual theology. Yahweh is the most, uh, I would say, probably one of the most used, most well-known, most popular names for God. He does have many, many names. Yahweh is a big one, but I am is paralleled with it. Uh, in Exodus 13, I am, we see I am there, and we also see Yahweh in, in the same sentences, and, and they are really interchangeable. They are uh, synonymous. I want you to think of the burning bush incident. When God was preparing to save his people from Egypt, he revealed himself to a lowly shepherd named Moses. Most of us have heard of him. Moses was about to become God's messenger and the instrument God would use to bring his people out of the land of Egypt. Moses, however, was not a respected leader among the Israelites at this time. In fact, he was thought of as a murderer because he did kill an Egyptian. Uh, and so he had absolutely no confidence when God gives him the command to go to his people. He is very worried about that. He doesn't think that the people are going to respect what he's saying. He doesn't believe they're going to listen to him. He's not an honored person there at this point. In Exodus 13 through 14, he said this to God. He shares his concern. If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I tell them? So he asked this question. They're going to they're corner me on this and, and try to figure out who I've come from and why I'm here. What if they ask me your name? Apparently Moses doesn't know any of the names of God at this point at all. And he says, if they ask me that, who should I tell them sent me? And from the burning bush, God replies, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God 
gives his name right there as I am. Now, as I said, Scripture shows that God has many names. And and typically when we see I am here, we think of it as one of the names of God. Is it one of the names of God? I think so, but I believe the answer, the clear answer is in verse 15, where God gives Moses additional instructions. Tell them I am sent you, and also tell them this. Say to this people of Israel, the Lord... The God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. So here, God tells Moses, tell them that the God of all the patriarchs sent you. But I want you to notice in verse 15 how the word God appears four times. God God of Jacob, God of your fathers, you see it there. Now, what is the Hebrew translation of the word God? Yahweh. So, verse 13 and verse 15 should actually be taken together. When God refers to Himself in 13 as I am, He means Yahweh from 15. I am and Yahweh are synonymous. So, when you see I am, think of God, think of Yahweh, the prevailing, most well-known and most revered known for God, one that... Literally, the Israelites revered. That was the most feared name of God for them. Now, here is the New Testament parallel. Because Jesus uses the name I am, doesn't he? It's not just a statement like, here's what I am. He is saying, I am. When Jesus refers to himself as I am, he is not only tying himself to that Old Testament event, Okay, and I'm talking about the burning bush. I'm talking about the deliverance of the Egyptians. He's not only tying himself to that, but he is declaring his involvement in it, that he was part of that deliverance, that he was a part of all of that playing out because he is what? He is part of the Godhead. In simple terms, when Jesus says, I am, he is declaring his deity. He's not just making a statement. He is declaring that he is equal with the person who originally said, I am God himself. I am God when he says that. I would say this, Jesus is the pre-incarnate I am of Exodus 13. I'll take it even further. Go back and read Exodus 13 too. You don't have to zip back that you can take my word for it, but when you get a chance for it, go back and read 13.2. What takes place there transpires before the other verses that we're looking at. And I want, when you go back there and look there, you're going to see who it is that appears in, in that fiery bush, in that bush that was on fire but not consumed. There was someone in particular in that bush speaking to Moses. And you know what that verse says? It was the angel of the Lord. Who is the angel of the Lord? The angel of the Lord is not a special angel, not a super angel, not an archangel. The angel of the Lord is the king of angels, the pre-incarnate Christ. God himself. There is evidence for this throughout all of the Old Testament. And by the way, the angel of the Lord appears everywhere in there and never appears once in the New Testament. Why? He did appear in the flesh as Christ the Lord. So this is is Jesus before he's ever born speaking to Moses and telling them about the deliverance he's about to bring. 
We often think of Jesus in New Testament categories as our deliverer. He is the Old Testament deliverer as well. The entire Old Testament speaks of him and points to him and points to the new covenant that he came to establish with his own blood through his death on the cross. When Jesus says, I am, he is basically saying three things. Maybe you can remember these things. You can jot them down. One, I am the God who spoke to Moses through the burning bush. That's essentially what he's saying. That's what he's conveying. That's what he means. Two, I am the God. I am the Savior who saved the people from Egypt. And three, I am the God. I am the Savior who saves the world from sin, Satan, death, and hell. All of that is packed into one single statement. I am. How deep and profound is the word of God? It's amazing. So when we see I am appear in John's gospel seven times, we got these I am statements, that is what is to come to mind. He is declaring his deity. He is declaring who he is and what he's done in the past. I would say Jesus' most daring use of I am appears in Mark Mark. 1459, where he was before Caiaphas, the high priest. This was that kangaroo court, you know, the middle of the night where Jesus was, you know, he was taken out of the garden. He was put before Caiaphas, the high priest, and he was, he was judged right there. And they, they were trying to indict him so that they could, you know, eliminate him. The, the Jewish leaders wanted to get rid of Jesus. If you've seen the Passion of the Christ, it kind of starts at that, at that kind of scene there. Caiaphas says this to Jesus as Jesus is standing there. Are you the Son of God? Jesus replies, I am. Exact same use is everywhere in John and in the passage I talked about earlier, Exodus. What did Caiaphas do when Jesus said, I am? Not just that I am the Son of God, but I am God. What did he do? How did he respond? He tore his... his you know, his garment, his vest, and he cried out, blasphemer! Because in Jewish thought, there's only one God, and in Christian thought, there's only one God, but we know that God is three persons, right? They don't get that. And so when he likened himself to God, Caiaphas exploded. And that statement right there, that statement, I am, is what sealed Jesus' doom, so to speak. It wasn't doom at all, was it? It was glory that was coming. Jesus begins this this teaching here, this section of the teaching, with this this great statement, I am. And then he tells the people that are there in the congregation, the crowd in the synagogue, that he is the bread of life. As the bread of life, what he means is that I am the only one I am the only provision. I am the only one. I am the only person who can satisfy your spiritual hunger. I'm the only one who can save you, is what he is saying. Now, these were Jews. They believed that works would save and satisfy their spiritual hunger. In other words, they believed that that what they're doing and all of their religion and all of their obedience and all these sorts of things, all of their piety, they believed that that's what would save them, and that's what would satisfy them spiritually. But as I say almost every weekend in this place, that those things will never save and satisfy. Salvation is not a 
a work on our part. It is a work that is completed by Jesus. It is true that we are saved by works, but it's not our works that we're saved by. It's the works of Christ, which is something R.C. Sproul said all of the time. Rest his soul. Only the bread of life, Jesus Christ, can give life, can satisfy us spiritually. Jesus then tells them what people must do if they want to receive the bread of life, if they want to be saved and satisfied. Jesus follows his statement with instructions. Two verbs here illustrate man's responsibility in salvation. First, man must come to Jesus. Isn't that what he said? Come to him. Man must come to Jesus. Coming to Jesus here has to do with repentance. Repentance has to do with turning away from, from self-reliance and you know, trusting in yourself and in your works for salvation or in some kind of false religion or false deity. It has to do with turning away from that operating mode of self-reliance, works, and all of that, turning away from your sin and all of that. It doesn't mean you'll never sin again, but it means you have a different attitude about it. So it's turning away from self-reliance, turning away from sin, turning away from life as you know it, Toward Jesus. That's what repentance means. It means to turn to a 180, to change direction. I was headed in one direction, now I'm headed in another toward Jesus. I love what Spurgeon said. He said this, You and your sins must separate, or you and your God will never come together. That's a profound, proverbial statement, and it is very true. Now, I want you to understand something. Repentance has been misunderstood many times. It is not a single act. It is not something you you do one time and you're good to go, and then you kind of go back to business as usual. Repentance is actually like a mode we live in that is characterized by a gravitational pull toward Jesus away from sin. Okay? It is, it is a mode of constantly turning away from sin. As it arises, as we trip and stumble into it, we are turning away from that. We are confessing, we are acknowledging, and we are constantly turning to Jesus. Repentance has built within it a pull toward Jesus away from sin. So the truly repentant person does not repent once. And, and this is the trouble with some of the evangelistic tactics that are out there today. People will tell you you need to repent and believe Jesus. And then somebody says, I just repented and now I believe in Jesus. And they pray a prayer. They sign a card. Maybe they even get baptized. And, and about three days later, they're back to doing what they were doing. There's no genuine repentance. And that's because they think, and it wasn't preached, repentance is not a singular act. It is an ongoing thing. Uh, a repentant person lives a life of repentance where they are constantly turning from sin to Jesus. Really, I think you could describe repentance as a hatred of sin and a love for Jesus. That'd be a good way to describe it. So the first thing is that man must come to Jesus. That means repent. Second thing Jesus puts here, man must believe in Jesus. He must believe in Jesus. MacArthur said this, To believe in Jesus is to trust in Him completely as the Messiah and Son of God and to acknowledge that salvation comes solely through faith in Him. So MacArthur tells us here, and he's absolutely right, 
Believing has to do with faith. It has to do with trusting in Jesus. It has to do with putting your trust in Jesus, not in what you can do, not in your goodness, not in your works, not in your deeds, not in Joseph Smith, not in Taze Russell, in no one else. Faith in Jesus means to believe entirely in him for your salvation. I'm not trusting in anyone else or in anything else. I understand that it's all Jesus. That's faith. Jesus told the crowd, if a person comes to me, repentance, and believes in me, faith, he or she will never again be spiritually hungry or thirsty. That's what he says. If you come to me in repentance, if you come to me in faith, you're not going to be hungry spiritually. Your soul will be satisfied. Now, does this mean that we will never again experience emptiness or the feeling of want? No. No, that's not what it means. Because if that were true, then how can we hunger after righteousness, which is something that Jesus requires or calls us to do? And how is it that that I am constantly pursuing all sorts of things or I always have this desire for something else? No, this, this doesn't have to do with meeting every single need. It has to do with something I think that's more important than that. So we don't want to think that if I come to Jesus in the way that Jesus describes, I'm never going to want anything again. Well, that'd be pretty weird if you come to Jesus and he satisfies you to the point that you don't want anything ever again, especially him. I don't need you anymore. I'm good. So this, this idea here doesn't quench all of it. It doesn't. You will still experience emptiness at times, especially in difficult times. Uh, your job runs out, you don't have any money, you can't pay bills, or, or maybe, you know, you just you get into a hobby. That seems to be the thing that I go back and forth with or whatever. There's always that that you're wrestling with. And, you know, we're called to master it, quite frankly, and sometimes we do, sometimes we don't. But I love what J.C. Ryle wrote about this here. He brings a little understanding. I'm going to quote him several times in here, so you're going to get tired of him, and I don't care. Because I think he's brilliant. He says this, Faith in Christ... Here's the description he gives. Faith in Christ shall supply a man's soul with a peace and satisfaction that shall never be taken from him, that shall endure forever. The man who eats and drinks material food shall soon be hungry as ever, especially if he eats Chinese. That's my add-on. But the man who comes to Christ by faith gets hold of something that is an everlasting possession. He shall never die of spiritual famine and perish for want of soul nourishment. This is what I believe Jesus means. I think Ryle had his finger on the pulse. It doesn't have to do with quenching your entire appetite as a person. You're going to have to wrestle with certain things, but it will satisfy your soul in a way that nothing else ever can or ever will. I don't know about you. But yes, I experience emptiness and I find myself wanting things and all of that, but I don't experience the same set of emotions, feelings, or draw to some other Savior. That's fixed for me. That's finished. And and, and I think that's what I'm describing to you, how I feel about the situation or my response to it. I I believe that's precisely what Jesus is referring to. You're not going to be, after you come to Jesus in repentance and faith, you're not going to still be out there shopping for a Savior. 
You might wrestle with works and those things and, and, and trying to earn God's favor and all that, which are things that you can't do because the cross shows us you have all the favor you'll ever need. You can never get to that level. You already did get to that level through the cross, but you'll wrestle with those things. But for the most part, I, I, for the last, I don't know how long I've been saved now, over 15 years, I'm not looking for a Savior. I'm not asking questions about Jesus. I don't know if He's it. That is done. And I think that's what Jesus is pointing to. And I think that's what Ryle was pointing to. Now, as and Jesus is presenting this, as he scans the crowd, he knows that the people, because he gets a read on people, he knows that the people are not taking his sermon seriously. He knows that they are not believing what he's saying. He knows uh, that they feel that, oh, he's, he's full of it, give us the other manna. He knows that they're not uh, leaning toward trusting in him or believing or doing anything that he's, that he's commanding or saying here. He knows that they're not interested in him for salvation and satisfaction of their spirits or soul. He knows. He knows exactly where they're at. He knows they still want physical bread and they don't give a darn about what he can give them spiritually. And guess what? He's not surprised or startled by this, not at all. It's amazing how uh, startled we get when pe- you know, we preach the gospel to somebody, we get somebody somewhere with them, and they reject it and reject it and reject it, and we're so surprised and startled by that. Well, that's precisely what's happening here, and Jesus doesn't flinch. In verse 36, he points to an earlier time where he either rebuked this crowd or the Jewish people in general for rejecting him even after seeing signs and wonders, the things that he performed right before their very eyes. And when he cites that past correction that he gave them, he does it right there in 36, when he cites that and says, well, you're, he's basically telling this to them. He's, he's saying this to the crowd. You're just doing what you always do, disbelief. And guess what? This will not hinder God's plan of redemption. Your rejection does not hinder or impact or thwart or stop or slow in any way what God is doing in His plan of redemption throughout the world. This is basically what He's telling them, and and, and we see this to be so true in the rest of this part of the discourse. This is what, what you're doing here, your disbelief, your rejection does not hinder God's plan of redemption. This is what he's saying. And he begins to hammer away at this point in verse 37, all the way through to 40. 37 says, and look at this statement. All that the Father gives to me will come to me. Translation, what you're doing doesn't change anything. All that the Father gives to me or gives me will come to me. And listen to what he says here. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. All right, now let's get ready because we're going to get into some deeper stuff here. And this is the stuff that I was like, oh, I can't get it. Before creation, before God made the heavens, the earth, the universe, everything, before it all, in eternity past, and I know my kid's going to laugh because he thinks it's funny when I say that. Before all of it, in eternity past, the Father, by divine decree, promised to give the Son, Jesus Christ, a people for Himself. J.C. Ryle put it like this. 
The Father from all eternity has given the Son a people to be His own peculiar people. The Bible describes these people whom God planned to give to the Son in eternity past, whom Ryle just describes here. The Bible describes these people as the chosen ones, Colossians 3.12, the elect, Romans 8.33, Romans 8.33, the church, Matthew 16.18, the body of Christ, 1 Corinthians 12.27, the bride, Revelation 21.9, the flock, John 10.16, true Israel, Romans 9, 6, a royal priesthood, 1 Peter 2, 4, and one more just to top it off, the people of God, 1 Peter 2, 10. These are all of the different names for this body of people whom the Father divinely decreed to give to the Son in eternity past. These are all the different names that we see in the Bible for them. And because God is sovereign, in control, omnipotent, all-powerful, immutable, unchanging, and entirely faithful, and we know what that means, His divine decree will be carried out and these people will be given to and received by the Son, Jesus Christ. In other words, God willed that it would transpire, which means it will transpire because He is who He is and nothing can stop Him, nothing can thwart His will. Now this... Truth is precisely what Jesus points to in the verse we just read. There are two parts to it. Let's look at part one. A people given. 37a, all that the Father gives me will come to me. The all here represent all the people whom the Father has promised to give to Jesus. I described them, right? The chosen ones, the elect, the church, so on. Think of it like this. The all represents all true believers for all time. Every true believer from all time. Old Testament believer, New Testament believer, all of them, the entire church, the entire true church, the entire true body. From Adam and Eve to the last people saved during the tribulation period. Those are the last ones to come in. There's a lot of Jews that come in then, finally. All whom the Father promised to give to Jesus will come to Jesus. How is this possible? How is it that this this body that the Father chose for Him in eternity, how is it that they will all come to Jesus, because that's precisely what Jesus says. All that the Father gives me will come to me. How is this possible? Predestination. That's how it's possible. The Father predestined that they would come to Jesus at their appointed times. How do they come to Jesus? Okay, we, okay, so we know that they will. We know that they will because of predestination, because God set it up. But how do they come to Jesus? Well, God, and you've heard me use this word, God calls them through an effectual call, which is made through the Holy Spirit. The person is living at that time, and and, and the Holy Spirit calls them to Jesus. Now, what does it look like when a person is effectually called by the Spirit? What did Jesus say in verse 35? The person comes to Jesus, repentance, and believes in Jesus, faith. Think of it like this. If a man is chosen by God, 
He is also predestined by God, and He will be called by God, and He will be brought by God to Jesus. That's kind of the full swing of it there. And then a question arises, and it arose among Jesus' listeners, I guarantee it. What if a person has committed great sins? Murder, adultery, uh, homosexuality, anything. Uh, what we would consider some of these great sins, and these are arguments the atheists use all the time, but you can, there's no way somebody like Hitler could get saved. Well, I don't think Hitler got saved, but I, I heard Dahmer got saved. I don't know if that's true. But this is a legitimate question that people have. If you're talking about this deal here and God's going to save these people, what if, what if there are great sinners among this group? Surely that will disqualify them. What if your life is a total disaster? You have shipwrecked your life and destroyed your marriage and done unconscionable, unthinkable things. What if? Yeah. I had a guy on Twitter the other day, raise this point. Uh, We got into a conversation, and and I'm trying to tell people, Twitter's not for that. Twitter's not Facebook. I didn't get on here so I could post something and have you question me. Just believe what I say or reject me. Don't ask me questions. But this guy gets on here, and he's got a problem. And and I said something about the predestination or something of that nature, and he raises the point, you know, what, what what if they're a sinner? What if This guy actually thinks that... People who commit great sins should be disqualified. So he obviously believes in false religion. He thinks he's a good person and what he's doing is pleasing to God. Now here's the deal. The question arises, right? What if a person has committed great sins? What if, you know, what if, that, what if that were to happen there? Does that impact any of this? And I'll tell you what, the crowd is probably thinking of this. They're just going to come to you, Jesus? But what if they're great sinners? And Jesus deals with this kind of thinking in the second half of the verse in part two. The first one's a people given. The Father is giving them to Jesus. He predestined to do that. The second one is a people received. 37b. Listen to what Jesus says. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Did you hear that? And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. You see, people interpret this as some sort of universal code for salvation. It's not at all what it means. You're not going to turn anyone away who comes to him rightly. Jesus tells the crowd very plainly that he will never cast out those who come to him and believe in him for salvation. That's what he's saying. This means that a person's sin and messy life will never prevent Jesus from receiving them. And I I hear people say this too. God would never accept me. I've done terrible things. I shipwrecked my life, ruined my marriage. I I, I did this or that. I practiced this. I'm too sinful. I'm too dirty. Have you ever heard somebody say that? I have. I'm just too sinful. I'm too dirty. Why bother? Show them this verse. Show them it. Show them 37b. Why will Jesus never cast out those who come to Him and believe in Him for salvation? The answer is clear. If Jesus were to cast them out, He would be casting out those whom the Father gave Him, 37a. Hello? See the logic? Jesus is a a genius. He would be, in effect, throwing the Father's promise in the Father's face by casting away those who come to Him and believe in Him. He would be casting out the Father Himself. 
He would be casting out the Holy Spirit since the Holy Spirit is the one who prepares and draws people to Jesus. We need to understand that salvation is is not just a Jesus thing, and typically in churches we think it is. It is not just a Jesus thing. The whole Godhead is involved in the eternal counsels of God before creation. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit convened to establish the plan of redemption. The Father designed the plan and chose from among the entire human race whom He would give to the Son, the elect. The Son was given a part, come into the world and secure everything the elect needs for salvation. Pardon, righteousness, justification, etc. And the Holy Spirit was given a part, bring the elect at their appointed times to repentance, to faith, and to Jesus. Think of it like this. God chose these people, Jesus bought these people, and the Holy Spirit brings these people. So you can see salvation is a triune work, and it is thoroughly unified. Each member joyfully serves the other in the plan of redemption. The Father has done His part, the Son does His part, and the Spirit does His part. And you must understand, some of this work is already complete. The elect, this body of people He promised to Jesus, the chosen, have already been chosen. They have already been predestined by the Father. And guess what? They have already been bought by the Son, haven't they? Jesus came, He lived a perfect life, He died on the cross, He purchased them on the cross. And the Spirit is still bringing these people in. He is still bringing them to Jesus. And guess what? Jesus is still taking them. Jesus is still accepting them. Those who are in heaven right now are the result of this triune work. Christians today are the result of it. Uh, Future Christians will be the result of it. Bottom line, Jesus will never cast out those who come to Him and believe in Him for salvation because He will never, ever, ever, ever oppose the other members of the Godhead. There is perfect love perfect fellowship, perfect unity in the Godhead, something that we strive for on this side of glory in our own body here. But it exists there, and not one fights the other, not one disobeys the other, not one contradicts the other. It is impossible for Jesus to not receive the people whom the Father brings to Him. It is impossible for Jesus to to oppose the will of the Father. It is impossible for Jesus to oppose the other members of the Godhead. Why is this? Well, simply put, God cannot oppose God, and Jesus is God. As a quick side note, verse 37a is an excellent apologetic against Pelagianism, semi-Pelagianism, and Arminianism, heresies that claim that salvation is the result of human will, which is prevailing in American churches today. It's so sad that people are taught it's all about them or it's all them. It's sad. It just, it just, it's just a bad situation. 37a clearly shows that if a person comes to Jesus and believes in Jesus for salvation, it is because they have been given to Him by the Father. In other words... Our coming to Jesus is not the result of our will, but of God's divine decree and sovereign will. This means that salvation is entirely of God, and He should get all the glory for it from His people, shouldn't He? 
There is yet another reason why Jesus will never cast out those who come to him and believe in him for salvation. We see it in 38. For I have not come down from heaven, or he says, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is what Jesus says. Jesus came down from heaven not to do his will, not to do whatever he wants, but to do the will of the one who sent him, the Father. What is the Father's will? Well, in this context, it is for Jesus to receive all whom the Father gave him, thus making it impossible for him to resist them or cast them out. When Jesus receives a person who comes to him and believes in him for salvation, he does the Father's will. During his incarnation, his life on earth, Jesus' highest aim was to accomplish the Father's will and bring him glory. That was his entire aim. Yeah, he came to buy his church, but, but he came to bring honor and glory and to obey the will of the Father. And when he receives a, a sinner who is repentant and putting his faith in him, he, he, he is doing the Father's will. Receiving those whom the Father gave him was one of the many ways he obeyed the Father's will. Verse 39, Jesus describes two things that the Father has willed for the elect. So he tells them, look, God has done this thing. He's given me his people. I won't turn any of them away because they're given to me from God. And I don't contradict the the rest of the Godhead. I don't do any of that. My will is to do His will, and that means I receive people as they come to me. And here he begins to talk about the Father's will for the elect. Two things here. Uh, This is just big, big stuff. A, none will be lost. 39A, and this is the will of Him who sent me. Who sent Him? The Father. He says, that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me. These people that were rejecting Jesus at this moment, either they were either given to Jesus and had not yet come to Him, or they weren't given to Jesus. Either way, it's no sweat off Jesus' back, because He knows He's not going to lose any whom the Father promised to Him. And what do we see here in this incredible half verse? Really, it's a two-thirds verse. We see the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, the P in Calvinism's tulip. It's just a soteriology of how God saves, uh, order. The Father's will for the elect is to cause them through His omnipotent power to persevere all the way through to glory. It is His will to take them, as J.C. Ryle put it, from grace to glory. And he will surely bring every true believer home to the bosom of Christ. He has willed to do this, and nothing can stop his will. Now, some versions, and I say they're perverted versions of Christianity, if they're Christianity at all, teach that believers can lose their salvation. This verse says it is impossible. Jesus will lose none. Jesus shall lose nothing of all that the Father has given him, it says. My last Ryle quote, and this is just to be an encouragement. 
We, we have here the words of abundant comfort for all the fearful and faint-hearted believers. Let such remember that if they come to Christ by faith, they have been given to Christ by the Father. And if given by the Father to Christ, it is the Father's will that they should never be lost. Let them lean back on this thought. You know, let them take it in. Let them soak it up. When cast down and disquieted, it is the Father's will that I should not be lost. How wonderful is that? Incredible. None will be lost. Why? The Father gave them. The Father willed that they would not be lost. And nothing can stay His will. Nothing can stop Him. The second part, B, all will be brought to completion. Every true believer, the people whom God, the elect, whom He set apart in eternity past for Jesus, all of them will be brought to completion. He puts it like this in 39b, but raise it up on the last day. It is the Father's will that the elect receive the final blow or the final component of their salvation, new resurrection bodies. These bodies will be free of disease and every other abnormality. Uh, They will be perfect in every way. They will have special abilities. They will be fashioned for worship and service in the kingdom of Christ and in the everlasting eternal kingdom of the Father when He establishes that later. The elect shall receive these new resurrection bodies on the last day, Jesus says. What is that a reference to? The second advent, the return of Jesus Christ, 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 through 17. Okay? So, it is the Father's will that the elect be saved, that the elect persevere and be preserved, and that the elect be completed. That's what Jesus is saying. To safeguard against fatalistic thinking, Jesus describes another facet of the Father's will in the very next verse. This is very important. Fatalistic thinking can occur when we ponder the doctrines of election and predestination, when we, when we think about the things that we're talking about, when we ponder what we're talking about here or looking at. Here's an example. This is what we might say in our mind. If God has already chosen the elect and predestined them, uh, predestined to save them no matter what, then the elect can simply kick back and wait for it to happen. They don't have to do anything, right? That, that's fatalism. That, that, that's like, well, if he's fixed it all, then why bother with anything at all? The elect can just kick back and twirl their thumbs and, and drink their lager and do whatever it is they want and don't have to have a concern in the world and, and somehow they're going to be sitting around and they're saved and elect. They come to Jesus and all that. It's just going to happen like that. And that's, that's precisely what people think. And I believe Jesus anticipated these, these thoughts from his audience, and this is why he responded with the, the following statement that basically destroys fatalistic thinking. Look at verse 40. It's our last verse. This is another part of the Father's will. For this is the will of, the, of my Father. He says, for this is the will of my Father that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. Now, some people think that, that, you know, that verse 39 talks about the elect, and then verse 40 talks about a whole other group that's going to come in. That's not at all what it means. This is Jesus' way of attacking fatalistic thinking, of doing away with it. 
I think this was his way of saying, it is the Father's will that eternal life come to those who look upon me in faith, who come to me and look upon me in faith. What Jesus means is that nobody gets saved apart from coming to Him and believing in Him. Nobody gets saved apart from that. Okay, so so we know the Father predestined for the elect to be saved, right? We know that. We've heard that. But God the Father did not predestine for the elect to remain passive in it, to sit by idly and wait for it to happen. No, 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 no. The elect must get up, get off their tushes. They must get up and run to Jesus for salvation. They have a part in it. They must repent and look upon Him with the eyes of faith. He's using this serpent uh, analogy here where Moses held up the stick and those Israelites that looked on the stick didn't die from the poison that they were bit. You know, they were bit by those snakes. You had to look at the, at, the, at the bronze image to be saved. And he's using the same illustration here. But the point is that the elect must come to Jesus and believe in Jesus. They cannot remain passive in this. In other words, salvation does not happen by osmosis. It requires a response. And verse 37a tells us that those whom the Father gave to Jesus, the elect, will respond. They will surely come to Jesus and believe. It is important that we understand that the Father has not only predestined the end result. Listen very carefully. I'm going to read that again. I want you to listen carefully because this destroys fatalism once and for all in my mind. It is important that we understand that the Father has not only predestined, set up to happen, the end result, glory and resurrection, but He has also predestined everything in between, Calling, regeneration, repentance and faith, justification, adoption, sanctification. Do you understand what I just told you? He didn't just predestine the end result. He predestined how it would all get to the end result. Everything in between. And, and I've had people question me on this when I teach predestination. I've heard this said a million times. People say this, if the doctrine of predestination is true then there is no reason to preach the gospel. God is just going to save His people. This is another type of fatalistic thinking. But those who say this are completely unaware of the in-between things I just mentioned. They don't understand that God didn't just predestine the end result, but everything in between. Like faith. Where does faith come from? Is it already in us? No. Faith comes through the hearing of the Word of Christ, The gospel, Romans 10, 17. Without the hearing of the gospel, there is no faith, and the ordo salutis, order of salvation, is broken. So predestination doesn't somehow cancel the need for gospel preaching. It requires it. It is mandatory to it. It is part of what has been predestined. Think of it like this. Okay, I'm getting toward my end thoughts here. Are you tracking with me or are you completely lost? Go back and listen to this in increments. Read the text yourself and marinate on it. We're dealing with deep stuff. It's hard. I don't think you're lost. Some of you look lost. Some of you look like, I have no idea what he's talking about. Let me just boil it down. God loves you. (laughs) That's what churches do. Well, nobody can understand what we're talking about, so he just loves you. 
Well, tell me how he loves me. Predestination. That's a love that's beyond the love I just said to you. I want you to think of it like this. Without gospel preaching, there is no hearing. And without hearing, there is no faith. And without faith, predestination cannot produce what it is intended to produce, salvation, sonship, and sanctification under the image of Christ. Lastly, at the end of verse 40, Jesus repeats what he said in the previous verse, I will raise him up on the last day. He repeats himself. Why did he do that? I believe he wants those who have come to him and believed in him for salvation to really, really know, to get down deep in their bones that he will absolutely bring to completion the good work, the salvation he began in them. It's a sure thing. He will surely take us from grace to glory. Why? God predestined it. Why? Because He loves us. That's why. Closing. If you have already come to Jesus and believed in Him for your salvation, know that this was not of your own doing. There are way too many Christians going out there talking about the decision they made. If they made a decision, it's only because the Father brought them to Jesus to make a decision. There's too many Christians out there glorying in what they've done in this. I don't glory in it because the only part I played, according to Scripture, is sin, and I'm not going to glory in sin. If you have already come to Jesus and believed in Him for your salvation, know that this was not your own doing. The Father gave you to Jesus. Let that get down deep within you. And let this get down deep. He planned to do this for you and for Jesus before the foundations of the world. What am I telling you? I am telling you you are not the result or product of happenstance. You are not some random sinner who happened to be at the right place at the right time. You are part of God's promise to Jesus. You have always been and always will be part of God, the Father's promise to Jesus. That's who you are are if you are in Christ by grace through faith. And you know what that means to me? It means that we are highly valuable to Jesus. Highly valuable. Because we are the Father's love gift to Him. True believers are. We are highly valuable to Jesus, and Jesus expressed our value when He went here and died. You see, others will teach you that He just died on there for whoever, and hopefully people will believe. The Bible teaches that He died for the people Jesus, God the Father set apart for Him. 
That means that what happened on Calvary was specific to the people whom Jesus, to the people whom Jesus had set apart for him. There is a a deeper love, there is a deeper value in this. And the cross affirms it. Let that deep, deep love and acceptance and value seep down into who you are and saturate you and change you and transform you and lead you to live for His glory and His glory alone. And I would also say, if you have not yet come to Jesus and believed in Him for your salvation, know that if you do, He will not cast you out. If you look on the Son and believe in Him, He will give you eternal life and raise you on the last day. He will take you from grace to glory. Come to Jesus in prayer. Confess your sins to Him. Ask Him for mercy. Ask Him for grace. Believe in Him alone for your salvation. Begin to live for Jesus. Get baptized. We can help you with that here. You can talk to me about that. As we enter communion, ponder what we opened with in verse 35, the bread of life. Jesus said, if we partake of the bread of life, if we come to Him and believe in Him, our souls will be fully satisfied. Come to His supper table full of faith. Confess your sins to Him and be nourished by the bread and juice. Eat, drink, and give thanks to Jesus. Amen.